This is the Ambercote Christian Centre podcast. Hello and welcome to God and Beauty, the next instalment of our whole church teaching series, Kingdom Living, where we're trying to inspire you to imagine in greater depth and more practically what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Through September and October, Adrian has taught us about God and work, how we can think about our work as one expression of our discipleship and how our work can find its place serving the growth of the kingdom of God. Now, one thing that's a bit different about church family teaching is that sometimes we will teach on topics that we ourselves are in the middle of studying and thinking about. As a teaching team, part of what we want to do is to be more conversational in our teaching, encouraging dialogue and discussion, not just delivering one-way talks and podcasts. And part of the way that we want to do this is not only to teach on topics that we've fully thought through and arrived at all our conclusions, but to also teach on topics which we are still working through ourselves, to invite you into our own journey of learning and discipleship. And that's the plan this month in November, where we're going to focus on God and beauty. So if you feel that this teaching opens up questions but doesn't answer them all, then great, I've still got open questions on this topic. If you think that some of my observations and reflections seem incomplete, then they probably are, and I'd love you to join me in the journey and the conversation. Now, I imagine that very few of you will have heard many sermons or podcasts, read many books, or encountered much teaching at all on this topic. In fact, some of you may well think this is a bit odd. Why is Tim Murray spending a whole month teaching on God and beauty? Well, my old supervisor from Nottingham once gave me some sage advice. He said, when you're telling anyone anything, the first thing you need to do is show them why they should care. So why should you care about this teaching on God and beauty? Well, I believe that if we can understand and start to live into this teaching, then it has the potential to grow our love, our desire for, and our experience of God. I believe it will increase and strengthen our faith. And I think that it has real significance for how we spend our time and how we raise our children. And equally, it has significance for how we disciple one another in our church community. So I hope that as you listen to this teaching, we may all begin to see how thinking about beauty and the God who is beautiful opens a perspective within our Christian faith that can be transformational if we're willing to take the journey of desire which beauty awakes within us. This teaching is going to be spread over two podcasts, so in this one uh, I'm going to first explore some biblical texts that are relevant and then reflect on the experience of beauty itself. And I hope that this will give us the foundations for the second podcast where we'll bring it all together and talk more about how the experience of beauty is connected to our discipleship, to the way we follow Jesus. And I'll suggest in that second podcast some practical applications of what we might want to do off the back of this teaching. For now though, first, I want to begin by exploring together two different verses in the Bible of particular interest. The first one is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and the second is in the first letter of John. 
Let's take them in turn. So first, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In this part of his letter, Paul is talking about what it means to live following Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit. He compares the Christian life in the new covenant to life under the law, the old covenant. And he argues that if the old covenant, the law of Moses, came with glory, how much more will the new covenant of being united with Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit come with glory also? Whereas Moses had to wear a veil to shield the Israelites from the glory of God when he had spoken with God, we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And what I'd like us to focus on here is the link that Paul makes between beholding, seeing, and being transformed. It is as we look at, as we behold the glory of God, that we are changed, transformed into his image. We see and we are changed. So when Paul says the glory of the Lord, what is he talking about? This is important because if seeing the glory of the Lord transforms us, then we want to know what we are to look at. So if we uh, kind of trace through the Bible um, the ways that the glory of God is spoken about, we see that it's spoken about in loads of different ways. But they're all linked with the presence of God. And perhaps the three most important ways that the glory of God is displayed are as follows. First of all, God's glory is displayed in his presence with his people through their journey from Egypt to the promised land as a pillar of cloud or fire in the Exodus in the glory of the thunder, cloud and fire on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, or in the cloud of his presence over the tabernacle. In these ways and more, God's glory was displayed in his powerful presence with his people. The second way the Bible talks about the display of God's glory is in creation. Take, for example, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God's glory is manifest and displayed in his creation, specifically in its beauty. God's glory is displayed and therefore he is truly present in the beauty of his creation. And we will have more to say about this later on. Finally, the third main way the Bible talks about God's glory being displayed is in the person of Jesus. To take just one example from the Old Testament, in Isaiah 40, we read this. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
And Mark's gospel tells us that these verses, this prophecy of Isaiah, was fulfilled by the coming of Jesus, that the glory of the Lord was revealed in the coming of Jesus. Jesus was the revelation of the glory of God. So this is the glory of God in sketch, <laughs> his beauty and presence among his people in his creation and is in his incarnate son, the Logos, Jesus. And it's as we see this glory of God that we are transformed. Let's turn now to our second key verse, which presents us with a similar picture. And this time we're going to turn to 1 John First letter of John, chapter 3, verse 2, says this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We've recently taught through the letter of 1 John in our online Sunday services and if you've caught those sermons then you'll know that one of John's three main themes is living as Jesus lived. If we're truly a Christian, John says, then we must live as Jesus did. But John acknowledges that we regularly fail to do that because of our sin and in this verse he offers us hope based on our future destiny. He says, don't worry beloved, even though you struggle to live like Jesus, you are already his children. And you may not be able to imagine what it's like to escape this life of sin, because it hasn't yet fully appeared. But we know that we will be different one day. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Just like the verse in 2 Corinthians, John here is talking about our transformation into the image of God to be changed, transformed, to be like Jesus. And again, just as in 2 Corinthians, John says that this is connected with seeing. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It is when we see Jesus, the glory of God displayed in his son, that we shall be changed and transformed. So then in both these verses we find the same connection. We see and we are transformed. We behold the glory of God and we are changed. And the central point that I want to make is this. What is this experience of seeing God's glory? What does this actually refer to? Some commentators on these verses think that this is primarily a way of talking about our understanding that to see Jesus or to behold God's glory is to have a greater grasp of the gospel. Now, there's no doubt some truth here that, uh, you know, to behold God's glory will involve a greater grasp of the gospel. But I think that these verses refer to something beyond just understanding the intellectual grasp of the mind. I think that they speak about desire, about the longing of our hearts. To see the glory of God, to behold the fullness of Jesus does not transform us primarily by giving us a better understanding, but by awakening and enticing the desire of our heart, our love, our affection and our delight. 
I will explore this more in all that follows, but for now, let's just let that thought settle. This is the idea, that the seeing of God's glory transforms us because it awakens and draws our desires and our loves towards him. So in both these two scriptures, we find a link between seeing and being transformed. Now, before we go any further, I want to um, spend a bit of time now thinking about beauty. So we've thought a bit about some scriptural texts. Now we're going to think a bit about beauty. And in particular, the question I'd like us to contemplate is this. What is it like to experience beauty? For beauty is surely something that we always experience. But what's the nature of this experience? Now it is of course possible to ask a different question, to ask what is it that makes something beautiful? And many have tried to provide answers over the centuries, you know, that something is beautiful in relation to aesthetic categories, things like form, colour, texture, symmetry, composition, and so on and so forth. But this isn't really the question I want us to start with or to think about, no. Our question is, is this, what can we say about what it is like to be confronted with something where we're compelled to say, how beautiful is this? What's that experience like? What can we say about those exquisite experiences, either of beautiful music or of painting, of poetry, of writing, of sunsets, mountains, forests in the autumn rain, or even the beauty of particular deeds, like the beauty of true forgiveness or self-sacrifice? What is it that marks this experience of the beautiful? Well, I want to note a couple of things, but you may want to pause the podcast before I go on and think for yourself, what is it that marks the experience of the beautiful? Here's a couple of my own reflections on this. First, I think the experience of beauty moves the soul. And I don't know how else to say this, but when we're confronted with the panoramic beauty of creation, you know, for example, when we sit on the beach late at night, listening to the waves lapping the shore, something in our soul or our heart is stirred. Something in us comes alive and responds to the beauty that we experience. This is why so many of us love experiencing or performing live music. There's something about the experience that makes us feel more alive, where the soul responds. We come alive as we are able to experience true beauty. And the opposite is also true, that we often find the distinct lack of beauty in the fabric of the lives of those who seem to be dying on the inside. Hopelessness, hard-heartedness and despair are often mirrored by a desert of beauty. And we'll reflect more on that later on. So first of all then, the experience of beauty moves the soul. Second, the experience of beauty has a certain excess, by which I mean our experience of beauty always seems to reach beyond the thing we perceive to be beautiful. Um, let me try and explain this because uh, I realise this may take us a few minutes to get our heads round. What I mean is this, when I read that poem 
or hear that piece of music or gaze at those mountains which I experience as beautiful. What is awakened in my heart is a desire and a joy and an aliveness that seems to be about more than the specific thing that has begun this experience. I've often read George Herbert's poem, Love Three, and have been moved to tears. And if you were to ask me what it was about the poem that moved me, in truth, although I could point to one or two things in particular, the poem itself doesn't seem to be the whole of the story. This last weekend at Dudmaston, the gardens in the fading lights were beautiful. But what rose in my soul could not be fully explained just by the colours and the shapes of the gardens themselves. It reached beyond, in some way, the poem, the gardens, whatever it may be, but the beautiful opens a window to something beyond itself. It has pointed to something I can't quite grasp, and it is this beauty beyond that is affecting me. There is an excess in the experience of beauty. When you gaze at the sunset, is the rapturous experience of beauty sufficiently explained by the sunset alone? I don't think it is. The sunset, the beautiful song, the effect of that these things have on us go beyond the things in themselves. C.S. Lewis describes this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, from which I'm just going to read an extract. He describes the experience like this. The first is itself the memory of a memory. As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, as if from a depth not of years but of centuries, the memory of that earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire, but desire for what? Not certainly for a biscuit tin filled with moss, nor even, though that came into it, for my own past. I desired, and before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone, the whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. The longing and the desire that's stirred by the experience of beauty speaks of more than a particular object that stimulates this experience. As Lewis would say, it's much more like the memory of a memory. But even when this is considered, the desire reaches even beyond the memory of our experiences. Beauty causes us to long for something that goes beyond the objects that we consider beautiful. It seems to wake our imagination, but we could not put into words quite what we are trying to imagine. We seem to taste something that leads us beyond all we have experienced with the promise of more. So if I can just summarise what I'm trying to say, if we're going to understand why beauty is so important for following Jesus, we need to contemplate what's actually happening when we experience beauty. 
with reflection, we can see that to experience beauty is for the soul to come alive and for an experience of desire and joy to be aroused within us. But this desire goes beyond the beautiful thing itself and reaches beyond it. Beauty awakes a desire in us, not only for the thing we can see, but for a beauty that we cannot see. A beauty that goes beyond the beauty present in this particular song, object, action, or part of the natural world. So, we've considered some scriptures that tell us that seeing the glory of God will transform us to be like him. And we've considered the experience of beauty, whereby beauty awakes the desire of our souls for something beyond the beautiful object itself. And uh, that's quite a lot to get our heads around, I think. So although this podcast is only about 20 minutes, we're going to stop there. And in the next podcast, I'm going to try and put this all together in a way that begins to give us a theology of beauty and show us why beauty is so essential for living in the kingdom of God. Uh, But before I listen, before you listen to that podcast, can I just encourage you to take some time to digest this one? Uh, If some of these ideas are quite fresh to you um, or a bit confusing, then um, why don't you listen again to the podcast um, maybe tomorrow? Give yourself a day to digest it and then listen again. Why don't you reflect a bit on those biblical texts? And why don't you reflect a bit on the experience of beauty? Just take some time to digest what I've said. And in the next podcast, we'll start to put this all together. Thank you for listening to Amblecote Christian Centre's podcast. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk